welcome to the Quarantine Spook Show. Kyle Carezzi. This is the show where I read uh, random story titles and improvise them into horror stories. to submit any story titles, you can send them to quarantinespookshow at gmail.com. Alright, without further ado, let's begin. This first story is called Fixing to Die. of history and lore about how color pigment and clothes came to be. Many cultures had their own version of it, and they provided much vibrancy with color. think of as a tie-dye, you know, tie-dye t-shirts and whatnot. Allegedly, though, started by the the Merry Pranksters from the 1960s, a traveling uh, hippie group. Apparently their bus uh, broke down one day and they decided to fuck around and then of tie-dyeing their t-shirts. And if that was truly the first iteration of tie-dye, then from then it became a cultural staple with all things hippie. And you can find plenty of tie-dye workshops around spinning machines you can have, tie-dyeing shirts and socks, or even following more streamlined processes for it. 
depths of the Southwest and the Midwest, like in Arizona, Nevada, and Arizona, Nevada, and parts of Colorado. There's a specific seriousness taken with tie-dye. You can say it was akin to alchemy. were trying to make mercury into gold and then ended up severely poisoning themselves in the process and then losing their mind and thinking it was enlightenment. From the 1960s to the 1980s and during a renaissance in the 90s and again in the 10s, people had similar pursuits to tie-dye. Any aspiring novice would be like, yeah, I just want cool tie-dye shirts, you know? Put a nice little deadhead decal on it and call it good. They wanted to pursue it at its true depth. Uh, cults and communes throughout the Southwest and the Midwest dedicated themselves to discovering the true mysteries of tie-dye. To find the true uh, pattern for tie-dye. To reach a stairway to heaven or the path to nirvana. A lot of people claim that Jackson Pollock also had a similar pursuit with his work, trying to master the true art of random and spontaneity to capture the purity of the chaos of the universe. But a lot of that is chalked up to conspiracy theories. As far as I know, he didn't tie-dye any shirts. some of these uh, cults and communes did take some of uh, Jackson Pollock's uh, principles on art and his theories and tried to employ them to their tie-dye shenanigans and their studies. Jacks, you know, trying to do Jackson Pollock's name backwards and using it as their name. They use that name because they try to capture uh, the purity of the chaotic spontaneity of the universe within their tie-dye shirts and their tie-dye shots and their hoodies.
Oswald was just a teenager when he read uh, the electric Kool-Aid acid test, learning all about the Merry Pranksters. And from there, he learned more about tie-dye. learning about the secrets of the Matrix or uh, 4chan, you started to get a little bit too deep. And he, when he learned about the secret studies of tie-dye in the Midwest and the Southwest, he thought, oh, I gotta, I gotta get in there. So when he graduated from high school, he ran away from home. guzzling away on the water all along the drive through the plains and through the desert and then he found what he was looking for which to him only existed in esoteric newspaper excerpts and random posts on Instagram. It was the Pollock Jacks Commune. He approached it like he was attending art school or something. He had a briefcase full of different tie-dye shirts and socks and hoodies and custom clothing, clothing that he was done so that they would accept him. commune members that he met, uh, they just looked at him, and to Oswald it seemed like he, they looked through him, and they would just say, forget everything you've learned. They beckoned Oswald to enter this one chamber, it seemed like a central tent of the Here's their tie-dye workshop, one of them. They had three workshops. One was open to the public, or any travelers or onlookers. And the other two were dedicated to the commune itself, for their own secret studies and their purposes. started cracking, started to, he had some blank t-shirts and started to whip something up. At first he was tripping over himself trying to pick what colors. He wanted to pick something cool and something that would like spin right if he squirted in a certain way. The first couple shirts he made he wasn't happy with. It's like he was trying too hard to make it look cool. commune members that were watching him were, they didn't seem very impressed. So Oswald just thought, and was just like, well, I gotta, I gotta give it all or nothing. So he gave it some squirts, and he gave it some spins, and then died the fuck out of that shirt. And he 
the onlookers, and they nodded, and they said, You have much to learn, but you're welcome to do that here. spent many years with that commune. Even during the short-term famine, because... Short-term short, short -term famines, uh... Because none of them were really good at growing food, and they had to cave and, uh... You know, call family members and then, uh, get, go to the grocery store and then get food, and it'd be good, but... spent many years there with his little rabbit guzzling away at the at its little water spout he would spend the years uh, developing a tie-dye library so that uh, that was open to the public and then a secret one just for the commune members any travelers that left the commune and came back and brought their studies with them. Eventually people were, uh, Oswald was getting a reputation as just like a young ace, uh, tie-dye, uh, connoisseur, uh, craftsman. had a direct link to the universe when he tie-dye. Some of the shirts he sold uh, to help the commune. Others he kept in camp so that students can learn from. And to other members, he let them wear them. said when Oswald made a tie-dye shirt, there were myriads of interpretations that could be drawn from it. Could it be something from space? Could it be something from earthly biology? Was it the iris of an eye, or just a fresh take on the golden ratio? commune. He was one of the go-to people to ask for any tie-dye questions. And he'd host gatherings and do live spins for onlookers and whatnot.
tie-dye, uh, his tie-dye work was even getting, a getting a lot of likes on Instagram. And though Oswald was pleased with all the work that was behind him, to him it didn't amount to anything. to the true chaos that he pursued. The purity of the universe and all that jazz. Not only did he want to achieve things in tie-dye that he never has before, but he wanted tie-dye to evolve the human species. And he believed tie-dye had that ability if it was done right. Which to him he never quite has. for the perfect tie-dye shirt. And then he was running out of red paint, so... And that gave him an idea. He gave himself a light cut on his thumb and started to bleed into the tie-dye. And then his blood started to become part of the tie-dye. saw the blood coagulate in a different way than any typical tie-dye paint. Unfortunately for the commune, he was stunned by the results. He showed the other tie-dye connoisseurs, and they were like, holy fuck, Oswald, that's brilliant. And Oswald said, yes, I know, and we can do it again. test their determination. They would bleed into the tie-dye vein and watch pe literal pieces of themselves be sprawled out on the tie-dye design. Some of the members, uh, the newer members, were freak freaked out by this. But most of them were in for so long that they didn't even didn't even phase them. Oswald was pleased with the tie-dye workouts coming from people's blood. But it was still not enough. 
push the idea for consensual sacrifices. Or if people were truly committed to the commune. body and their organs, uh, to be sprawled out on tie-dye. To be dispersed upon multiple tie-dye t-shirts, to be given away at festivals and deadhead shows. Oswald and his cohorts had a way with people and manage to convince uh, younger members and runaways that it was for the greater good. That they could truly assimilate into the universe like they always dreamed. satisfied the tie-dye that comes from the commune. It didn't quite hit the mark that he was aiming for. He thought about sacrificing himself in the name of tie-dye. But no, he couldn't certainly do that, because if he wasn't alive, who would pursue the great pursuit of tie-dye? No. He thought he had to live and continue on.
matter of time before the feds found out. And they were cracking down on the commune. Dismantling their structures, casting arrests. Oswald wouldn't use this comparison, but he felt like Hitler in his bunker. He felt like the walls were closing in. He was, he was in his workshop uh, when they started to crack down. about tie-dye. In the, in the path of the of becoming a monolithic, weird, culty tie-dye figure. He looked at himself in the mirror. Saw a scruffy beard and his and his beads. He had so many beads. So as the feds came down, he thought, well, if I'm going down, I'm going down swinging. So he was putting down decisions. He's been putting... He made the decision he's been putting off his whole life. To truly give himself the tie-dye. Even though he didn't achieve a mastery in his craft that was up to his standard. But then again, whoever did. So we commenced the process of the tie-dye. We'd set up the rigs with some spinning blades. And then he leapt himself onto the spinning blades and then his blood was spattered all across the tie-dye shirt fell to the ground. And his life, as his life was fading, he saw his cute little rabbit in its, uh, in its cage guzzling its water. He noticed that its cage was loose. And then the rabbit snuck out. And then hopped out of the tent structure without even looking back at Oswald. last thing Oswald saw upon his uh, last moments of life. To see the one being he truly loved abandon him in his time of need. This next story is called Velvet Foot. 
first received it on his 10th birthday. Turning 10 was very memorable. It was memorable for Little Nelson because the number 10 had two digits. Previous years, he turned six, he turned nine, seven. All simple single digit numbers. When he turned ten, he thought, whoa, shit. Two digits. Now that means something. about numbers in general, he just thought, wow, my age is going to be two digits for the rest of my life, probably. This is a big deal. This is a ceremony that should be celebrated. And it was. It was the best Chuck E. Cheese outing that he ever had. some of his friends from school and some friends from his neighborhood all hanging out in Chuck E. Cheese they were playing on the little jungle gym eating a lot of pizza playing arcade games and whatnot yeah little Nelson felt very hardcore tickets you got. You can never really get anything good in the prize department. Maybe a little bubble blowing thing or a, a little plushie the size of a child's palm. But it didn't quite matter to Nelson. He was still down for it anyway. He just wanted to have fun and have a good time. comparatively meager amount of tickets. What he did end up getting was a tiny little rabbit's foot. 
encased in velvet. And he only knew about uh, tidbits about rabbit's feet. But apparently they were good luck. staring at it, analyzing it. He was sifting through the velvet fabric and he realized that, oh, this is an actual rabbit's foot. It was like a mummified foot and everything. And even saw its toenail. keep you for good luck. This this will be cool. So we kept hanging out in Chuck E. Cheese, playing in the ball pin, going down the little slides and eating some extra pizza. exceptionally well at the arcade games, especially skee-ball. When he played skee-ball, he kept getting those fifties and hundreds like nothing. Splurging out. Even little Nelson couldn't believe it either. He's barely even played ski ball, but he was totally nailing it. so much they decided to get something else with it. So what he got was a little little alien plushie uh, the size of his chest, about a foot tall. It didn't sound much didn't sound like much, but by Chuck E. Cheese arcade standards, that was a big deal. jealous about all the good luck the little Nelson was having. So I went up to Nelson and just kind of said, hey, you know that, you know, that rabbit with the rabbit's foot is going to come after you and get its foot back. And now little Nelson was just like, nah, -uh, shut up. And the kid was like, yeah, it's true. It's going to, it's going to get you with your house. Just you wait. And little Nelson was 
bed. Really excited and enthralled about the thrilling Chuck E. Cheese time he had. It was right at that crisp age before he realized how potentially creepy establishments like Chuck E. Cheese can actually be. childhood for sure. So he shut off his lights and said goodnight to his parents. He was lying in his bed, the moonlight shining in. of the food he ate, which was presented to him in a way that was so far removed from where it came from. He didn't know how long he stayed up analyzing it, but he did stay up. off with it in its hand. And then he started to feel a little tickling on its palm. He started to woke up and he woke up and felt the sensation on his palm. Then he realized that it was the rabbit foot toe scratching at it. Popped up and backed away against his wall. And the moonlight just shined on it. The little rabbit's foot just curling and bending. He ran out of his room, started to freak out. out and curled himself into a ball. Tried to talk himself out of it, just like calm down, maybe it was a it was a dream or something, you know, it's just a rabbit's foot, just a dead little foot, it's fine, it's just a little kid's toy, you know. It's nothing to do with a rabbit. It might not be an, even be a real rabbit, you know, whatever. It's it's cool. It's cool. He wasn't a doing doing a good job convincing himself. 
So under the kitchen table, that's when he heard it. Thump, thump.
being any closer to his door. Thump, thump. And then he heard a loud bang against his door. Bang, bang. The wood on his door started to break apart. And the one-footed rabbit started to break in. bed, huddled on, not knowing what to do, clutching the rabbit's foot, which was twitching in glee. Nelson running out of options, was just like, here, you want the rabbit's foot? Here, take it, take it, it's yours. So he tossed the rabbit's foot in front of his door. Partially broken apart, the zombified rabbit just went, its little paw reaching out, and it grabbed the rabbit's foot and then pulled it away. And then Nelson kept hearing the thumping until it disappeared. some questions, but he would just remain silent and tight-lipped. He never told anyone else what happened with the rabbit that night. And ever since then, his luck never turned around. This next story is called Hawkwing.
the time Richard turned 37, he was obsessed with bird watching. And not in the usual creepy kind of spook show way, just his enthusiasm was certainly above average. watch birds casually, you know. If he was in a city, he would just, like, watch pigeons and just be like, oh shit, it's just, like, as complex as, like, Chinese boxing or something. He liked to feed ducks and watch them eat and peck at the food and little breadcrumbs and peck at themselves. He always thought chickens were cool, but never really saw himself as someone to take care of them. to the point when he was finally satisfied with the degree of bird watching that he was into. He would go on a lot of hikes in the Pacific Northwest and bring some binoculars and his little bird book and then watch the fuck out of some birds. their migration habits. He would also log them as well. Take a nice camera and then take some really cool pictures and post them on his Instagram. was a true connoisseur when it came to bird watching. And the moments he'd capture with his camera are really impressive. He'd like to capture uh, nature at its most kinetic. His favorite was uh, when predatory birds were capturing uh, smaller rodents, truly witnessing the circle of life in action. So on one of Richard's hikes, he was walking down a trail and saw an adorable little rabbit in his path. He's just like, oh shit, a rabbit. Well, I'm not a I'm not a bird watcher. I'm not a rabbit watcher, but I'm certainly a bird watcher. Just because I'm a bird watcher doesn't mean I can't watch this rabbit momentarily. So without getting too close, he would uh, take some pictures and whatnot. And then during mid-snap, without him knowing hawk came down and then took the rabbit up and then flew away with it. 
and Richard captured the exact moment when the hawk abducted the rabbit. Richard was kind of freaking out about it, just like, holy shit, I can't believe I got that fucking hawk rabbit picture. where the hawk was going and decided to follow it. It was a bit off the, uh, bit off the beaten path, but to him that's what bird watching was all about. He took pictures of other little critters and wildlife and birds he saw along the way. What he really wanted to see was, a. Uh, Returned to its to its nest and feed the rabbit to its young, or at least feed it feed on itself uh, alone. Either way, Richard would find that uh, witnessing a blessing. The hawk's nest was high up in a pine tree, so Richard did what he can what he could to climb a tree. And get a better vantage point. He was a fairly experienced climber, so it didn't take too much time. It wasn't too arduous. he climbed up the tree, he saw the hawk's nest. It was getting darker out, but he still managed to get some good pictures. To him it seemed like a very vicious, gruesome sight, but really it was as vicious and gruesome as anything in nature. set at this point, but he still wanted to watch the bird. He turned night vision on his camera. snapping some really cool nighttime pictures. There's something really about watching the hawk's eyes glow uh, in the night. You can barely see the hawk with the exception of uh, the nighttime camera lens. camping that night. 
truly enamored by witnessing this hawk in its uh, nighttime habits. It's something he's never seen footage of previously. started to lose track of time. His legs were falling asleep on the tree branch. And they were starting to feel numb. He was afraid of falling asleep on the tree because he didn't want to fall down. And it was a long fall because he climbed way up there. kept his eyes on the hawk. He was still, he was still up and about, uh, hanging out in its nest, probably doing some kind of a bedtime ritual of some sort. He didn't know too much about hawks, and it was the, this was the longest uh, time he's ever seen one in action. So as, as he was taking pictures with his uh, nighttime camera. Another creature came to swoop in. It was much larger than the hawk. Probably twice the size of the human. The creature had some humanoid features, but it was hairless and didn't have a nose. large, wide-open mouth with many, many teeth. Something along the lines of a great white shark. And it had what looked like bat wings between its, arm and its arms and its torso. So without missing a beat, the creature came and swooped in and snagged the hawk and just started eating it. apart the hawk's wings and then tossed them uh, and started to eat the hawk and bit its head off and started to eat its body. And then only uh, had its feet left, so the creature just tossed the hawk's feet. creature started to sift through the hawk's nest and just started to eat what uh, remained of the rabbit in the nest. It was like picking at leftovers. And Richard just said to himself, oh shit. He took some pictures and the ones that he could, they were a bit blurry. Did take one of uh, the 
creature hearing Richard and then staring directly at him. This made Richard scream a little bit, and then he fell off the tree. It was a long fall, and he hit some branches on the way to break his fall. But he ended up landing on his leg, and he broke it. sunset. supply kit and pulled out some bondage and then tied it around his leg to stop the bleeding a little bit. He couldn't rest or anything like that. He just knew he had to keep moving. He knew the trail ended uh, in about a two hour walk. So he just tried to limp as quickly as he could. to keep his uh, broken leg still, but he couldn't do that while he was trying to rush out of the forest. He grabbed a stray branch and made it into a hiking stick and just went as fast as he could, even though he only went as fast as a hobble. He can only see through night with his camera, which is wasn't equipped at his face, only hung around his neck. But he could hear the creature fly around him. Flying from tree to tree, flapping its wings. Richard didn't know what the creature was waiting for. creature was waiting for him to pass out or give in. But Richard refused to do that. All he had on him was a pocket knife, but he would use it to his dying breath to keep the creature away. already getting tired. The adrenaline helped him keep going, but he was up all day as well. With the pain in his leg and the shock it caused, he could only move so fast and so far. He could still hear the branches and leaves rustle above him. 
So what we decided to do was uh, just uh, stop and sit uh, in front of a tree. His back against the tree. So if the creature came from, he could see it. And he kept his pocket knife in his hand, uh, laid out and ready. by his face so he can see it through night vision. But he couldn't see the creature through the camera. Sometimes he'd see some leaves and branches rustle, but it would be too little too late. He'd see some vague wing, wing movement. armed and ready. He didn't know how, how much time passed, but the battery on his camera was dying. He was already getting sleepy. At this point, the movement in the trees were still. No wind, no animals. He imagined the creature was just like sitting, waiting on a branch, being patient for whenever Richard would give in. It didn't take too much longer for the battery to die. camera on the ground and then just thought maybe someone will find it so with his pocket knife he waited he waited for the creature to come tried to be alert and vigilant as possible while his leg was bleeding out and throbbing with pain Richard's eyes became heavy head was bobbing, but he tried as hard as fuck as he could to just stay awake and stay focused. Sleep when he felt a tight pressure on his chest. He woke up and the creature's long talons were gripping his chest, digging its claws into his, causing him to bleed. The creature started to fly up, holding Richard. About several yards up, uh, Richard was shaking and squirming. fell from the creature's grasp and then landed in the dirt and landed on his leg once again. Not only did he scream, did he scream the loudest uh, he's ever screamed, but he screamed the loudest he ever heard.
his arms and scream would be enough to fend off the creature for another night. But that didn't stop the creature from coming after him again. Grabbing his back, the creature lifted him up and threw him through the trees. the trees and up to a mountain. There is a perch with a large nest on the side of that mountain. The creature dropped Richard. At this point, Richard was too weak to move. saw the creature before him. The hairless, humanoid, uh, bat-like creature. The creature was nudging Richard, and Richard would shake, try to shake him off every time he did. Then he realized it was like a cat playing with, his, with its prey. And he didn't want any part of that. his pocket knife at the creature, trying to fend it off when it's good, when he could. At one point he cut one of the creature's talons, but he saw no blood draw. someone finds uh, the camera and sees what I've witnessed. He was fortunate that he wouldn't be awake to witness the creature feed on him. So as he started to fade consciousness and his life started to fade away, it started to rain. Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. 